Have you ever asked yourself the question, does my life matter? Does the kind of life that I live really, really matter? And I'm not talking about the kind of school you go to. I'm not talking about the kind of job you have. I'm not talking about the kind of family you belong to or or anything along those lines. I'm talking about the fact, does your life as you live it have any real significance? Does it, does it accomplish a purpose? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Does my life make a difference? Does how I live make a difference? And certainly with regards to thinking about what our, what our lives reflect, as Christians we would say, well, of course, I mean, our, our life is to glorify God and all that, all that we do, all that we say, everything like that is to, to glorify God. But I'm going beyond that. Not ignoring that, not focusing on that, but going beyond that a little bit. And I want to tell you a story about Danny. Danny, at a very young age, was taken from the place that he lived and forced to live in another country. As he was there, he actually grew to have some degree of prominence within the society in which he found himself living. He wasn't there on his own accord, but he worked in such a way, setting his heart to not compromise even his God-worshipping values, even though the society in which he was living would be anything would be much less than God-fearing or God-worshipping. But throughout the course of his life, he began to, as I said, rise in prominence. He went through a number of administrations of leadership in that particular country that he lived in, and actually was put in charge of a number of things. He's an older man, still living there. There were those who were under his charge that didn't really care for him. They didn't like the fact that somebody who was a foreigner, somebody who wasn't even really a citizen of that country, the place that he lived, or was currently living, was over them. And they, they sought ways in which to sort of malign his character in order to sort of get him out of that position and no longer have him be a part of leadership over them. The problem was they couldn't really find anything. His, his, his status as an employee was so exemplary that there was nothing really that they could hang their hat on to say, hey, look, leader, this guy is a really terrible employee. So what they ended up having to do is concoct a way, a law, using the ruler of the day, that made it against the law for Danny to practice his religious beliefs. And they were successful. Nearly cost him his life. 
Because Danny wasn't going to compromise his worship of God, no matter the cost. More about Danny's story later. If you know Paul Harvey, you'll get the rest of the story eventually. You just got to hang on for a little while. But the tendency for us as Christians is to think that living a peculiar kind of life that marks us as Christians has no other real purpose than to glorify God. So we'll acknowledge that, but it has no other real purpose than to glorify, glorify God. Additionally, when we, when we live the Christian life and, and we live in such a way, especially when we're living in this world and, and sort of the, the, we, we, we see the, the culture and things push back against us, it can be quite tempting to simply just capitulate. Because we can adopt the posture of, well, you know, how we live doesn't really matter. Danny's story captures the essence of what we're talking about here. And as we go into these couple of verses in First Peter, we're going to kind of flesh this out a little bit uh, by asking th- three questions and answering them. So the three questions that we pose of these couple of verses are these. Who are we? How are we to live? And what is the purpose? Who are we? How are we to live? And what's the purpose? That's how we're going to march through this. So let's begin by asking the question, who are we? And right out of the gate, Peter says, writes, verse 11, beloved. Peter has had plenty to say in the last chapter and a half about our identity, especially as we looked at a couple of verses last week. There were a bunch of statements that that talk about who we are. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, a, a people for his own possession. All of those things. You go again back farther and he talks about us being born again to a living hope. We are people that have become part of the family of God. And here, you know, in, in sort of this one term, it's, it's capturing all of that. We're beloved. And though he is speaking to the church collectively, the noun form that Peter uses here is quite interesting. Because even though he's speaking to the church, it's, it's as if he is focusing on you specifically. So if everybody else left the building, don't. And, and you were the only one sitting here. You are being addressed as beloved. He's speaking to you individually. Even though we are a part of the church, even though we are a collective part of the church, we are being spoken to as individuals as well. You see, we're, we're loved by God. But we're, we're not loved simply as a, a number among many other numbers. We're not, we're not just loved as a sort of blurry face in the, in the mass of faces in the church. God loves you. You are beloved. You have been born again into the family of God. You have received mercy. You are a royal priest. You are a chosen nation. You are holy. God has done this for you as His child. And yes, you're a part of the church, but never forget the fact that you are beloved specifically and individually as a part of the church. And that's what Peter wants to get at. 
Because Peter starts to make a transition here. He makes a transition in the letter that he's writing. He's talked about all of these things that you are. And now he's going he's to make an adjustment and start, and start moving toward how is it we are to live. And if you don't understand first and foremost that you are loved by God, everything that comes after that is going to be really, really awful. And life will be hard. Not that it's easy, but he wants you to understand you are beloved. And there's a reason for it. Because not only are we beloved, he talks about us being sojourners and exiles. We're sojourners and exiles as well as being beloved. There's already been much said about the future hope that we have as Christians. Peter's talked about that in a number of places. We have that living hope that we've been born again to, that will be fully and finally realized, that inheritance that we will receive fully and finally when the Lord Jesus returns, when He makes all things new, when we receive the resurrection bodies that we are promised, when we, be, when we inhabit a new creation that is free from sin, dwelling in the, ple- the presence of God. That's our true citizenship. That's the, the thing that we are looking forward to. We live in this world, but this is not our home. Our true citizenship lies in the new creation. Our new citizenship lies with God. Danny's story is much like that. He, he's, he was taken from his home. He lived in another place. He didn't cease to be a resident or a citizen of the place that he was taken from. But he lived in a place that was not where he was from. He was a sojourner. He was an exile. He lived in this world, and we live in this world amidst, amidst this world simply on a temporary basis. This isn't how it's always going to be. And we need to remember, dear friends, that, that this idea of being exiles and, and foreigners, sojourners, is not unique to us. This has been the story of God's people all along. Looking forward to something. Looking forward to that inheritance. Looking forward to what God would do. We, we, we read part of the Advent this morning. Even Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God made that promise that He would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. They were looking forward to something. They were looking forward to a place and a person Abraham uses the same phrase in, that we see in, in verse 11 of, Peter, of 1 Peter, sojourners and, and exiles. He, he uses it in, as he's attempting to buy land as a burial plot from the Hittites. He was from somewhere looking forward to a place. He didn't have a place of his own yet. He was not, Romans chapter 4 says he's, he's, he was looking forward to something. The nation Israel, in some sense, in exile when they were in Egypt. They were looking forward to the promised land. But they lived in Egypt. When they were in Babylon, they're in exile in Babylon. They're looking forward to the the prophecy of Jeremiah being fulfilled that they would be back. 
Even Jesus says in both Matthew and Luke's Gospel that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay His head. The story of God's people is always looking forward, living in this world as uh, sojourners and exiles, looking forward to that final place. Looking forward to that time and that place when God would bring the new creation about. We've always been sojourners. We've always been exiles. It is the tradition of God's people to look forward to where God places us and brings to fulfillment the promises that He has made. Not something unique to us in the 21st century, nor in the original audience that Peter was writing to in the 1st century. This is the life of God's people. We need to remember, dear friends, that we are beloved precisely because um, of the fact that we are sojourners and exiles. We need to understand that we are loved by God, that God has given us everything, and though we are right now in the midst of this world, it does not mean God's promises are negated to us. It does not mean that the difficulty of living in this world somehow negates who we are. So who are we? We are beloved, and we are sojourners and exiles. Next question. How do we live? If we are beloved sojourners and exiles, how do we live while we are sojourning? Peter urges us. Verse 11, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We aren't to, as God's people, retreat from the world, but we're to abstain from these fleshly desires. Though we are born again to new life, the effects of the fall are not instantaneously and completely eradicated. They still affect us. Peter had mentioned that we have been, we have been redeemed from the feudal ways inherited by our forefathers. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, he talks about us being liberated from the passions of our former ignorance. In chapter 1, verse 14, these are all things, though we have been set free from the slavery of those things, that is, we have the ability, by virtue of the fact that we have been, re- that we have been given new life in Christ, we have the ability to say no, which is exactly why Peter says, abstain from them. It would be a futile effort if we did not have the gospel and we did not have the Holy Spirit and we did not have liberation from sin for Peter to tell us that because we would not have the capacity to do so. And so Peter says abstain from these things. Abstain from these fleshly desires. Generally speaking, we can say that these are anything, anything that eclipses our passion for the Lord. Anything that we, we long after, that we long after more than God. It can be you being more, it doesn't even have to be something negative. You can be more passionate about your career than you are the Lord. You can be more passionate about your grades than you are the Lord. You can be more passionate about your family than you are the Lord. You can be more passionate about the new Star Wars movie than the Lord. That's to me. It's the physician heal thyself kind of thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. And it can be negative things as well. It can be a lust for money. It can be a lust for power. It can be lust for sex. It can be lust for 
degrading others. It can be idolatry. Peter says, abstain from these fleshly desires. Refrain from those things. We abstain from the things that are passions of the flesh. And what, is, what do we know about these things? What do we know about these passions of the flesh that Peter tells us? Look at it. They are trying to kill you. They wage war against your soul. These are not good things. These, these passions that, that you have that, that, that vie for the attention that is rightfully due God, these are not good things. They wage war against your soul. And he's not talking about the immaterial part of your being. He's using soul in a general sense, talking about your whole, your whole person. They are, these, these fleshly passions are as an enemy invader going to war with you. These are not, this is not good. So this, this notion that, 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 that predominates even our culture that says, well, if it feels right, do it. Or if it feels good, do it, is wrong. Because these are passions that are at war with you. That are trying to kill you. Peter says, no. Stay away from those things. Refrain from those things. Resist those things that are at war with your soul. Those passions, those fleshly passions that you have that take the preeminent place of God. But he says also the converse as well. So he has like the negative, resist these things, but keep your conduct honorable. He says on verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We resist these things. We fight against these things because we're a holy people called from darkness into light. And Peter Peter tells us to, to resist those passions but embrace the things of God. You go back to the beginning of chapter 1 or chapter 2. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put, put those things off. Verse 3... Uh, Long for the spirit, pure spiritual milk. Take on those things of God. Long for the things of God. Previously in chapter 1, he says, Love each other, love one another from a pure heart. We are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, we are to live virtuous lives. And one of the things that the English text doesn't bear out very well is, is the way in which we resist these fleshly passions is by keeping our conduct pure Amongst the Gentiles. If you focus on doing good things, if you focus on living a virtuous life, you do not have time to indulge the passions of the flesh. Paul says it in a little bit different way. If you want to, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. Otherwise, you can just listen. In in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these you once walked. Um, verse 8, But now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So this idea of putting off, putting off. And then he comes to verse 12, and he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. So you get this, this metaphor that Paul uses, this idea of, of it's, it's like changing your clothes. You're, you're putting off, you're, you're taking off the gross self, the, the things associated with the previous way of life, and you're putting on new things. And that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. Don't indulge these things, resist these things, and by resisting these things, you keep your conduct pure. You live a virtuous life. Negative and positive. And as Peter mentions the Gentiles here, he's, he's, he's not speaking to a predominantly Jewish Christian church here. He's using Gentiles in sort of a general term, speaking of those who have yet to come to faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking about unbelievers. So in other words, what he is saying is you are to live a virtuous life amongst unbelievers. How do we live in a way that is virtuous? We resist the passions of the flesh. We keep our conduct honorable amongst non-believers living in such a way that is virtuous. And one of the ways... We do that, we can do that as, as good works. I mean, we do good works amongst uh, unbelievers. And, and you pick this up or was, were handed this on your way in. If you didn't get one on your way in, you can get one on your way out. The 12 days of Christmas. There are a number of things here, ways in which we can serve others in this community that show our good works. So take a look at that. This is the emphasis Peter is getting at, though. In in subsequent verses, he's going to deep dive into specific areas, but this is sort of a general transition to how we live. We live a life that is virtuous among unbelievers. So we are called beloved, we are sojourners, and we are exiles who are to live a life that is virtuous amongst unbelievers. Last question. What's the purpose of that? And here's the perplexing thing. Here's the perplexing thing about this. Even though we are called to live virtuous lives, good lives amongst unbelievers, that doesn't mean that we're going to be free from suffering and persecution as Christians. Look at what Peter says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, when. Literally to speak against as though you were criminal. In living a Christian life, a virtuous life amidst unbelievers, it does not somehow get us out of being persecuted and suffering for the sake of the gospel at the hands of unbelievers. Even if we're living, doing good things. And it, it may happen in your school. Maybe you, you are, people you're around tempt you to cheat. You don't want to cheat, so they mock you. Maybe you actually turn your work in on time, where others do not. That's a thing, I guess. When I went to school, 
Due dates were sort of due dates. Evidently, they're mere recommendations these days. That's a whole separate issue. We won't talk about that. Maybe it's in your job where your coworkers goof off, waste time when the boss isn't around and you won't have any part of it. So they mock you, ridicule you. They don't like the fact that the way you live is making them look bad. Maybe it just happens in the social sphere when you don't participate in the ethic of society. You don't live like others. Remember Danny. Danny was wrongly accused, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He was living a good life. He, he was an exemplary employee. The one thing he did, though, was worship God. And that was the one thing that they used to nearly kill him. The other thing is that if we are continuing to live a virtuous life in the midst of unbelievers, even when we experience such things, it means we keep doing it. It doesn't say anything here about retaliation. It doesn't say anything here about getting back at someone. As you're living a virtuous life, as you're spoken of as an un, as a evildoer, as a criminal, you still keep living that virtuous life. And here's the purpose. In order that people might come to faith. You see what he says? So that, here's the purpose, when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The purpose of living a virtuous life amidst unbelievers is that they might come to faith. When unbelievers witness our good conduct, it adorns the gospel. It's attractive. It has attractiveness. People begin to question about who is this Jesus? Why are you like this? And you have opportunity to speak about the gospel. After first service, somebody came up and told me that this particular passage, this particular message really spoke to them because they had just reconnected with someone that they had not spoken to in 34 years. He had not seen them, spoken to them, or anything for 34 years. And one of the things that he heard was that his conduct, the way he lived his life, the testimony of his life, had a profound impact on this individual and ultimately was the way in which he ended up coming to Christ. This is the purpose. So as beloved sojourners and exiles who live a virtuous life amidst unbelievers, we do so with the purpose that people would come to faith. That's what he's getting at when he says that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the great thing. Dear friends, when we live virtuous lives amongst unbelievers day after day after day after day, and people see our conduct, we have the opportunity to talk to them about, about Christ. That on that great and final day, those who may persecute you, those who may 
cause suffering in your life are those who are standing shoulder to shoulder with you on that great and final day praising God. I don't know what a better purpose for a good life is than that. That God would use us in such a way that the testimony of our life would speak to unbelievers and that unbelievers would talk or want to know about Jesus and we would have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and they would be converted and on that great and final day we're standing shoulder to shoulder with them praising God. And then we would get to spend eternity with them because we were all there. Somebody told us about Jesus. And Peter's borrowing this right from the lips of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, you're, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, what does he say? Let your light shine before others, so that, here's the purpose, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's the purpose. People see our good works even while they're persecuting you. Even while they're causing suffering. And they ask you about Jesus and you get to tell them about Jesus. You get to tell them about how humanity was ultimately exiled from God through sin in the garden. As Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden... That they were exiled from the presence of God and humanity has been in that condition ever since and how the whole purpose of the redemptive history that we see from cover to cover in the Bible is God reconciling humanity to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Who experienced exile in the fullest sense on our behalf. On that cross when he cried out as he's bearing the sins of humanity, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The writer to the book of, he- of the book of Hebrews said, He, that is Jesus, suffered outside the gate, outside the city, outside the walls, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And you see... You get to the end of the book, the book of the Revelation. And those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been purified by Christ and by Christ's work, are not outside the walls of the city. They're a part of the city. Those who refuse, those who stumble over the offense of Jesus and the gospel are those who are outside the city and who will ultimately experience exile for God for all of eternity. But the gospel message is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was forsaken by God in your place, so that you are welcomed in as beloved. That's the message we get to tell people. So let's see if we can put this all together. Though we think that we live life this side of the new creation, that it may not have any sort of a purpose, that we may not have meaning. Peter tells us that our life, that we live here, 
the life that we have now should adorn the gospel and not detract from it. The purpose in living a virtuous life amongst unbelievers is to adorn the gospel and not detract from it, that people would come to faith. The way we live has meaning for the sake of the gospel. Peter's talked about us being born again. He's talked about the inheritance. He's talked about the living hope. He's talked about us being sanctified. He's talking about us, all the things we are. That's the essence of the gospel. And the point he's making here is that it's completely counterintuitive as someone who has been made new to live in a life that detracts from the gospel. Think about the prophet Jonah for a second. Jonah gets a commission from God, right? Go preach to Nineveh. Jonah says, no thank you. Matter of fact, I am going to hop on my scooter and I am going to go the entire opposite direction. And you remember the, the, God sends a storm. He's, he's on the ship. He's heading for Tarshish. The whole nine, the sailors, the captain and the sailors drag him out of the hold and they're like, hey, uh, who are you? Where do you come from? What's your occupation? And Jonah, without missing a beat, without missing a beat, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Oh, really? Then why are you going the opposite direction from where God wanted you to go? Does your fleeing really reflect your profession? What about our friend Danny? Or the prophet Daniel. Danny for short. That's what his friends call him. He rose up to that high position in Babylon. And underneath King Darius, the rulers, the other rulers that were over, that, Dan, that Daniel was over, talked Darius into making a law that made it against the law to pray. And Daniel was not going to compromise his worship of God. And so he prayed. And they put him in the lion's den. And God delivered him. And he came, comes out of the lion's den, and what does King Darius say? He makes a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall have no end. He delivers and he rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This whole life of, of Daniel and the fact that he did not compromise his life, and, and, and Darius sees God deliver him, he makes a decree. To worship God. Or maybe a better example. The Lord Jesus. Who was crucified. Yet did not revile nor retaliate against his accusers or his murderers. But instead prayed, Father forgive them. And as he breathed his last... A centurion who was standing right there said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Live in such a way that doesn't detract from the gospel. 
It doesn't matter what your position in life is. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what school you go to. It doesn't matter what family lineage you belong to. It doesn't matter any of that. Whatever your station in life, wherever you're at, we're to live a life that doesn't detract from the gospel, but a life that adorns it. That unbelievers might see our good works, and even while they're reviling us, would come to faith. It may not be instantaneous. We may go through suffering, we may go through persecution for a length of time, and it may not be instantaneous. But that's okay. Because we need to be about the long game. We need to be about the mission that Jesus has given to us. And so we live virtuous lives amidst unbelievers, not detracting from the gospel, but adorning it. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we're grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the fact that it challenges us. But also we're grateful for the gospel and for the Lord Jesus who gives us through the Spirit the ability, the power to do these things. For if it was on our own accord, it would be fruitless. So we pray, Father, do your work in us. Mold us, make us, shape us more and more into the image of your Son, that we would adorn his beautiful gospel. Amen.